Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad. The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool Zone Media. Okay, hello. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. This is Shireen. Today I am joined by... You know, you know him, you love him. It's Robert. Hi, Robert. Ah, uh, someone knows me and loves me. That's nice. <laughs> Robert's here today to talk with me to Charles McBride. But I met Charles fairly, fairly recently doing just pro-Palestine stuff online, and I really liked his work. He's here <laughs> to talk about some things that I think are very important, like Ukraine, and why helping Ukraine is not the same thing as, as aid to Israel, and all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, let's just get right into it. I want to know your experience with Ukraine. Can you just tell us a little bit about that first? Sure. First of all, thank you, Shereen, so much for, for having me on. This has been one of my favorite podcasts for, for a while. So this is kind of a slightly surreal moment. Going into my experience with Ukraine, I, st- I double majored in history and comparative religion in college. And I was, I was Kind of interested in sort of the post-Soviet sphere, and I worked on some kind of post-Soviet issues when I lived in Washington D.C. after school, um, and also was deeply interested in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, which is kind of why I took an interest in in that region. So <laughs> I remember in like 2015, I I, I watched this Vice video called uh, Russian Roulette that popped up on my YouTube feed, and it just completely it just put Ukraine on the map for me in a way that I'd, I'd never really thought about before. I thought of it as the Ukraine. Um, yeah. My, <laughs> yeah. My, my Muscovite Russian history professor had always talked about it as a, a part of Russia. Yeah. Um, and she had denied 
you know, I was during the Maidan, the revolution of dignity, I was in college and she denied that Ukraine had any autonomy. She echoed all the Putin-esque sort of talking points about CIA intervention and neo-Nazis and stuff. And, and I didn't really know what, what I didn't know at that point. Um, so then I, I, yeah, I got, I got interested in, in sort of what was happening in the lead up to the Russian invasion. And I had been following this, this guy who went over to Syria a couple of years ago named Aidan Aslan. And um, in my conversations with, with Aiden, he'd sort of told me a little bit about kind of what, what stuff was you know, like in going on in Ukraine. And uh, I got very interested and I was following him and all of his friends and what they were doing. And at that point, I had, you know, about four or five years of nonprofit humanitarian experience under my belt, as long as sort of, as well as sort of a historical political understanding of the region. And um, so when the, when the war happened, when the full-scale invasion happened, I immediately started trying to fundraise, trying to help out, trying to educate, and mo- mostly to try and cut through Russian propaganda, because there were a lot of people in my sphere who were just retweeting straight-up Russian propaganda. They were elevating you know, what, what you and I know, who are basically Kremlin-adjacent um, individuals in the United States who have sway in leftist circles, some of whom have reemerged in the Palestine discussion, much to my chagrin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about that more later. <laughs> I would love to get into that. Yeah. And so, yeah, and my, my, my hope was to kind of to do that. And, and as I was sort of working with the Ukrainians, one of the things they said is, hey, man, everything happens here. You have to be in Ukraine for, for, to get anything off the ground, so you need to come here. And I'm like, are you insane? It's, there's a war going on in your country. So I said yes. <laughs> and, um, are you insane? Sec- yes. <laughs> yes, I am. I, in retrospect, so the like, second week of the war, I booked a plane ticket, flew over there. Crossed the train into Poland, scared out of my mind, got in touch with the Ukrainians I'd been talking to previously, and after a mad hustle from the train station, was very comfortably drinking tea in a cute little apartment in Lviv with somebody's grandmother, and um, was like, this is, this is a crazy experience. So I spent two months in Ukraine at the beginning. My intention was to sort of identify gaps in the medical supply chain particularly things that were going to be initially overlooked in the mad dash of refugees and resettlement and all that sort of stuff. And one of the things we identified was like prescription medication for people coming from the East to the West. And I think it's important that not a lot of realized that people coming from Eastern Ukraine, a lot of them had never visited cities like Lviv until the start of the full-scale invasion, predominantly Russian speakers and you know, for them, Lviv was, was almost like going to Poland. And it was a very new thing for them. But, you know, your, your, your medical issues don't stop just because someone invades your country. In fact, oftentimes they get worse. And so mm-hmm. what I was trying to do initially was, was find a way to address that. And that led me into contact with Rostislav Filipinko, who's one of my dear friends and, and the, the, the co-founder of the organization that we started together called Mission Kharkiv. So that organization worked initially on prescription medications and then started distributing high-end oncology drugs, which are very difficult to transport, very lucrative to steal, and very difficult to store because they have to be kept at a constant temperature. So we, we, we focused on those things while everybody else was focusing on tents and 
you know, and, and, and clothes for refugees and that sort of stuff. And as a result, we carved out a very interesting niche in terms of the humanitarian response and are still, you know, going strong with that today. And so that was initially kind of why I went over there for that first two month stint. And since then, I've been back over to film a, a documentary, sort of an artistic short documentary uh, called Note of Defiance. And then I was involved with another documentary project, which is hopefully forthcoming in the next year. Nice. Yeah, I uh, I don't think I've talked about this on the show, but but kind of my relationship with Ukraine and, and eventually going over there and starting to report on what was happening started, weirdly enough, as a result of the fact that I had friends who went to the burning big Burning Man event in Nevada. And I, I wound up traveling with one of them in India, uh, this Ukrainian woman um, who lived in the Bay. And when stuff started in late 2013, which is when the Revolution of Dignity is is kind of the common Ukrainian name for it. You'll also hear it referred to as like the 2014 Revolution or the Maidan Revolution. Um, they're all talking about the same thing, which is when the guy who was the president of Ukraine trying to make himself into a dictator, uh, this dude, Viktor Yanukovych, who is this incredibly wealthy oligarch who literally built a golden palace for himself with like a fake lake that had a boat on it that was a restaurant for just him for like the level of rich oligarch asshole we're talking about here um cracked down really brutally on a student protest which it kind of culminated in uh, this kind of escalating occupation of the center square in the capital that basically got built into an ice fortress in like the middle of the ukrainian winter this very very like pretty epic story of of successful resistance because this guy is eventually forced out the police riot unit the Berkut who had done had been like literally killing people by dropping them naked in like ice drifts and stuff are disbanded it's a really remarkable story and i just kind of fell into it cuz my friend uh connected me with a couple of people who were on the ground there who were friends of hers who were ukrainians in the tech industry who traveled to uh, the U.S. every year or so for Burning Man. And so when this occupation of the Maidan started, they were like, well, we know how to like, we're used to making soup and food for large numbers of people and like running little chunks of a camp. So we'll just start, we'll just do the thing that we do at our, our camp out over in Maidan. And they were part of, the thing they were part of was the Auto Maidan, which was this like, mobile unit of resupply where people would like basically drive supplies to and from different areas of occupation in the city. It was a pretty dangerous job as things escalated, but that was my in. And I wound up talking to like, I don't know, 20 or 30 people like actively the entire time the occupation was going on. There's like two folks I never was able to get back in touch with who just kind of like dropped off at a certain point. Like it was a really sketchy time for a lot of people, but I wound up traveling there the year after, right after the the early part of the invasion started to report from Evdivka, which is, you know, was had been under siege for a year at that point and is still under siege today for an idea yeah. of like, that's a decade now, basically, that yeah. that this this little town has been shelled. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I didn't know that about <laughs> Burning Man. That's. Oh, it was a weird know. way to get connected to it. Yeah. yeah. I just got a message from this friend of mine who was like, hey, some, buddy, some buddies from my camp are like trying to overthrow their government. Do you want to talk to them? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, that, that sounds pretty dope. Yeah. That's, that's your MO. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Yeah. You know, Burning yeah. Man really does, the Playa provides, <laughs> it really connects all, doesn't it? I have some weird like tangential Burning I've never been, but I have like- Neither have I actually, yeah. I have like Burning Man devotees who play a large role in my life, and it's just very interesting. 
Yeah, yeah, the the weird little connections you get. And I was kind of disappointed, you know, to me this was, because the whole time, especially like the late 2013, early 2014, as this was going on, I was like, well, they're probably all going to get killed, right? Like just, you know, we we, we were several years in the Syrian civil war at this point, like I was not optimistic. Um, And that's not what happened. And then there was like this counterpoint of realizing a few years later that, Oh, a, a shocking number of people on the left think it was a bad thing that they overthrew their government. Yeah. Which, yeah, uh, I guess gets us into, like, the the kind of thing you wanted to talk about, which is the difference in providing military aid to Ukraine versus Israel. Yeah. Which, I don't know, I mean, from my standpoint, it's pretty obvious, right? Like, one country is fighting a military that has a massive industrial base, much more powerful than it. Uh, and is killing large numbers of civilians. Um, and they have proven their ability with military aid to react effectively to this invasion. And the other case, I don't think I need to explain which one, but it's Israel, is a country with a massive arms industry that is fighting people who have no arms industry of any kind uh, and primarily killing civilians. So I can very easily justify one of those groups of people getting U.S. weapons and one of them not needing any additional weapons. That's where yeah, I well, you see, Robert, none of that is justified because of the existence of the Azov Battalion. <laughs> there is no right for any Ukrainian grandmother to get access to her insulin because there's a couple of neo-Nazis that were stationed in Mariupol. But, but truly, that is, that is about how sophisticated a lot of the leftist critiques of the Ukraine, of supporting Ukraine are. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes in... One of the things that, that I talk about, and I talked with Shireen about this when, when we went on an Instagram live together, is that a lot of leftists seem to live in kind of a weird little cinematic universe where only the US and Israel can be the bad guys. And by extension, France and the UK, you know, and yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result of that, they have this just really strange view of global affairs that literally no one in the countries they're talking about share. Somehow Russia and Iran and China and Cuba are all aligned in a sort of anti-imperial axis because they oppose the interests of NATO and the United States. And I think that's just so, (laughs) that's, that's patently ridiculous, but it plays a big role in conversations like what's going on in Palestine. Yes. Or people will invoke, well, why are you giving all this money to Ukraine uh, instead of giving money to people, the relief for the Maui fires or, you know, doing, why aren't we doing medical Medicare for all? So it's like, a, it's a convenient because it's the military industrial complex. It's the Iraq war. It's all these things that we as leftists were taught to hate, but it's, they're being used for good. It's like America's actually being the arsenal of democracy and doing the thing that we did in world war two that helped the Soviet union march into Berlin. Well, and it's also, I think, an important thing to note is when we talk about the, it's always framed as the U.S. is giving this amount of money to Ukraine. What's what's happening is we are taking stockpiles of arms we already have worth that much money, and we are sending them there. Like, they're not, right. like, that. that is overwhelmingly, like, the the what kind of aid we are sending over. So these are extant weapons that are sitting in the U.S. doing nothing. 
and being like the Bradleys. We didn't just build a bunch of new Bradleys. We had a shitload of them. We weren't using them anymore because they were not very useful in the conflicts that we yeah. were fighting, right? That Same Bradley with is HIMARS. Yeah, like, exactly. Do you really Same think with the United States is like really itching to like need HIMARS right now? No. Like no. all of this stuff we're sending to them has been mothballed for yeah. basically since the Gulf War. And people don't understand that. It is funny to me to imagine like, yeah, let's send that stuff to, to Maui for the fires. That's what they need. Is they need long range artillery. That's really going to that's really going to hey, help them heal. I'm in favor of sending I mean, lethal aid to to the indigenous residents of Maui. Now, but I think hey, that's it. That's a I'm separate not, conversation. Right. I'm not mad about it. You, know, about it. you <laughs> talked me into it. And I think we have enough mothballed tanks for both of these causes. Yeah, I think for me. The comparisons for Ukraine and Palestine, it started with how it was presented in the media. It it just, it rubbed people the wrong way when the Ukrainian struggle was presented in a certain way and the Palestinian struggle was not. And people can draw draw like comparisons to like like whiteness and all this stuff. Absolutely. Uh, And I just, it got me really, it really irritates me because it's not like the oppression Olympics. Like we're not trying to compare or demonize Ukrainians, we should demonize the media for not representing Palestinians in the right way. But I think that is kind of the origin of the comparison that I saw anyway. Yeah, and I I think that that's that's really worth digging into because there's a couple of, first off, it is absolutely an injustice that Ukrainian resistance and that like is seen as inherently just and not just Palestinian resistance is demonized or often ignored, but like all sorts of resistance by people who are uh, being harmed around the world, partially as a, or in large part as a result of like U.S. and other Western countries policies um, are not seen in the same light as Ukrainian resistance. I, I certainly agree with that stance. That's not the fault of anybody in Ukraine, right? This is not, we are not talking about a country that exercises power on the global stage. We are talking about a cash poor nation that is, has been struggling with Russian imperialism for most of the time that most of the people listening this, actually all of the time that everybody listening to this has been alive in one Mm -hmm. form or another, right? Um, And so I, I think it's perfectly fair to point out the ways in which the media reports unequally on these conflicts and what's happening in Palestine, what's happening on stuff like Bukha and on, on the mass slaughter of civilians in Gaza. Right. I think that that is worth pointing out, but it's also not worth blaming Ukrainians over. They are not participating in that just by saying, Hey, it's bad that our civilians are being massacred by rockets. Right. And other forms of, of weaponry, by the way, like that, that's not on them. Yeah. Yeah, I I think to, to also kind of flip that on its head. I mean, this, Part of it is the media narrative. You know, it's easier. Ukrainians are mostly hot white people in the eye of the Western media. And it's easy yeah. to cheer for the hot white people who exactly. have, you know, everyone, everyone, a lot of people have been to a Ukrainian restaurant. They're familiar mm-hmm. with some Ukrainian, maybe songs. So they have friends. If they live in a place like LA or New York, you know, Ukrainians. You're familiar maybe even with some Ukrainian media. And it's, and it's kind of like this accessible thing, you know, and also like there's other aspects of it, too, which are even stranger, which is that. Ukraine produces like a huge amount of the world's fashion models. Like that's yeah. a very accessible thing for people to get behind in the nice liberal media. And you can see these in these initial broadcasts being like, I've never seen anything like this with seeing all these European looking refugees. Yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. all right, this there are is multiple clearly... newscasts like that where they're yeah. like, these are not Arabs. Like they say it with their chest, you <laughs> yes. know, like these are, yeah. these are people like us. But for the, the, the flip side of that is that, that leftists, 
are reluctant to be charitable to Ukrainians because they also see them as hot white people who don't need any help. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I, I they, they're, they're unwilling to admit that Ukraine, Ukrainians like Gazans also suffer from a settler colonial state as their neighbor with a history of ethnically cleansing and genociding them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of the reason for that is that the, the neighbor that ethnically cleansed and genocide, well, one of them, because actually they had several neighbors ethnically cleanse and genocide them. But the Soviet Union like did a significant amount of that during the whole Adul War. Now, yes. the Germans also carried out a massive genocide in Ukraine. Like, and by the way, a huge number of the Red Army soldiers who successfully helped defeat the Nazis were Ukrainians. As a note, they, this is, you often see this thing where people will point out, you know, there were a significant number of Ukrainians that fought with the Nazis and they tend to ignore that like, yeah, and there were even more Ukrainians who fought with the Red Army. Like the, both of those things happened. It was a world war and Ukraine was right in the middle of it. It's a very ugly situation. And it kind of comes down to this inability of a lot of people to not even nuance, to care about accuracy when that accuracy is not like ideologically convenient when it points to some of the ugliness and messiness of war, I I, uh, I find that very frustrating. Like, I, I sympathize with, because I was reporting on the Syrian refugee crisis from the refugee trail right after, actually, I was in Ukraine. And it is unfair that, like, Ukrainian refugees were treated differently, but the people to blame for that is the news media, not yeah. refugees who have lost their homes. Um, yeah. In fact, I suspect that a lot of Ukrainians have... a a different attitude themselves towards the suffering that they witnessed during that period of time, because they've now been through it. It's just like a human thing. Now, you know what that's like. Yeah. I mean, as a Syrian person who, for the past, like over a decade, I really, the media really fucking got on my nerves every time I would see them not talk about Syria or when they did, it was not in a good way. And then when they started really embracing Ukrainian refugees are talking about them in a different way. I'm not going to lie. It made me mad, but not at Ukrainians. Like, yeah. I think even now, we should have criticized the media back then, but like they're doing the same thing now with their fucking headlines about Israel and Palestine. It's always how it's presented versus yeah. the people it's presenting. Like when someone, when some dumb newscaster is standing in front of a group of Ukrainian refugees behind him and he's like, these are not Arabs. These are white people. They didn't <laughs> say that. He did. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And also, like, I, I encourage everyone to ask Ukrainian, particularly Eastern Ukrainians, opinions on the Western media and, like, Westerners in general, because two years into this war, they have a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine that they would, you would find a lot of those sentiments shared by the Ukrainians. Yeah. They don't always appreciate how they're portrayed in the Western media as, you know, either brave defenders of their country or soot-covered soot refugees coming off of a, a rail car. You know, they, they, they have a lot of opinions on, on these sorts of things. Uh, they feel patronized. They feel babied in some senses. Um, and they feel like they will be ultimately abandoned by us, mm-hmm. which is already coming to pass. Yeah. yeah. And as yeah. the attention shifts to things like Gaza, you know, it's difficult for them to feel like they have any friends. Yeah. No, I want to get into that. Uh, but let's take our first break. And yes. we will jump back in. Yes. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. And we're back. Okay, we had just been talking about how uh, the support for Ukraine has kind of uh, changed recently. Can you uh, get into that a little bit? I'm not even necessarily sure that it changed so recently. I I remember being over there and it was wall-to-wall coverage from from the moment I set foot, you know, from the moment it started to really up until the Oscars and the Chris Rock slap is what mm-hmm. we all talked about. Oh, like last the, Oscars. Like mm-hmm. This is, yeah, the last yeah. Oscars. And the Chris Rock slap and all the attention that that got was the, the moment that a lot of the volunteers talked about is the moment where people started to want to forget about Ukraine. There was still a lot of coverage, but suddenly it was like, you don't have to be obsessed with, with Ukraine. You know, Ukraine's now a second page story instead of a first page story. That was around the same time that the Russians withdrew from Kiev. So suddenly there wasn't, there wasn't this expectation that Kiev was going to fall um, and the capital would be taken and Zelensky would be captured. And it started to slow up even then. You know, the donations dried up, the attention dried up. And by the time I went there in the winter of 2023, last year, it was like 
people already wanted to forget. I mean, I, I live in Los Angeles and a lot of people mm-hmm. here were saying things like, oh, wow, is that, is that still going on? Still over there? You know, really nice, well-meaning people who knew yeah. I'd been over there. They were just like, is that, you know, is that still a war going on? Yeah. <laughs> here we are in, in, in 20 days, it's going to be two years of this. Yeah. And my friends over there are, are exhausted and they don't, and they're now a, a page eight story. Yeah. And, and it, it's, this comes back to like how Americans like to think about conflict. We have an enormous appetite for, for war and for, you know, a, a particularly what we consider a just struggle for up to a couple of months. Right. And then you know, people were very excited when, yeah, the Russians invade everyone, the expectation, both from like military experts in the West and from certainly civilians is that like Russia is going to crush them immediately. And then they don't. There's this real upset come from behind underdog victory and Americans love that. But then like it's not a total immediate victory. And in fact, it turns into at this point and really, really brutal, ugly, slow war of attrition and maneuver, which is like what war is right like that's that's how any sort of near peer conflict is going to boil out and it's not a kind of thing that is resolved quickly and it's not a kind of thing that is resolved without cost and as soon as that became clear americans it didn't it doesn't fit into that like 90 minute hollywood vision of how a conflict is supposed to go right mm-hmm. there was no the ukrainians didn't blow up a death star and end it right like yeah. it, it i mean actually that's not what happens in the movies either but like it, it's it's still it was not the quick clean end that a lot of people were expecting and hoping for and as a result people are like well now it's a quagmire and now it's like we have to start looking for some way out of this thing which it, by the way has cost us very little like my my stance on like when is this over is like, well, I guess when Ukraine says it's over, right? Like if, if the Ukrainians want to come to the negotiating table um, and negotiate an end to hostilities, then like that's their business. But up until that point, I think the business of the United States is to continue to meet our treaty obligations, which we should, we should note, like the United States and NATO are obligated to support Ukraine in a war over its sovereignty because they gave up their nukes. Uh, with that understanding, right? This is what and happened we, when they we became a country. Yeah. Yeah. We said, <laughs> we you give up your to. nukes and we got your back. Like this is, this was the promise we made. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the only interest I have. And like my, my answer is like, how long should we support them? Well, as long as they're fighting. And we've been keeping that promise for the cost of 5% of our defense budget. And like you mentioned yeah. earlier, it's, it's, it's already stuff that's mothballed since the Gulf war sitting around waiting to be used you know, I mean, the idea of giving them F-16s, every, every country in the world, practically, see, at least in the NATO alliance, it seems like everyone has an F-16. I think yeah. we're giving them to Turkey now, too. Like, it's not a big deal to give a couple of F-16s to the Ukrainians or a couple of Bradleys or, or Abrams or, or what have mm-hmm. you. And I think that people, especially on the right, but, but also on the left, who get obsessed over the amount of money that we're sending or the amount of equipment and personnel, especially when they see these stories about corruption, they don't, they don't understand the scale of how small this actually is relative to the United States, other commitments like to Israel. And yes. they, get, um, they get sort of myopically focused on this uh, and, and they use it as a reason to, to, to dislike Ukraine. The right will never like Ukraine because Zelensky was the guy who made Trump look bad and got him impeached. I mm-hmm. think it's that simple. 
Yeah. It's wild that like, well, also, I mean, the Russian interference and stuff, you know, the Republican Party now resembles Russia more, but it's wild that Republicans, you know, 30 years ago were super anti-Russia and now they're Russia's best friend and they think Ukraine are sort of Satanist, whatever. Yeah. QAnon corrupt people. And it's uh, for to, to kind of emphasize how small 5% of the Defense Department budget is the Pentagon. This is from like a, a 2022 story. The Pentagon can't account for several trillion dollars in assets, which doesn't mean we don't fully know where they are, but it means that like Pentagon record keeping has sort of like lost huge amounts of assets over the years. At the moment, like right now, the Pentagon, like as of November 2016, had failed six audits in a row. And as far as I can tell, I don't think they've actually ever passed an audit of like all of their resources. Like there's huge amounts, trillions of dollars in assets that like we can't fully document. It's it's when you think about like the amount of money that we've actually sent over there as a defense or as a percentage of just like the stuff that we can't fully account for in our military's like arsenal. It's it's a tiny fraction of that, let alone a fraction of like our our defense department's total assets. And it also this gets back to when people talk about like corruption in Ukraine and by God, Ukraine has a history of government corruption, which is part of what the revolution in 2014 was about. Right. But it's particularly silly to complain about that as a reason not to send them weaponry when we know the U.S. Defense Department is massively corrupt, a huge amount of corruption involving not just like not not specifically even like military officials, but involving civilian contractors, involving like the agencies we contract to involving the money that we've sent over the course of like the eight trillion dollars or so that we've spent on uh, the war on terror, a huge chunk of that, hundreds of billions of dollars of the money that we spent on the war on terror is just gone. Billions of it disappeared in the form of cash pallets that we just lost, right? Like this is the amount of money that it has cost us to support Ukraine in this war is a rounding error of the shit we lost just as a matter of business. Like just just as like a, like a normal thing. It's like thing. a rounding error of like what we gave to Halliburton. Yes, you know, yes. Like, <laughs> to build hospitals that didn't work in Afghanistan. Yeah, exactly. And, and speaking of Afghanistan, I think a lot of people look at you. They look at the Afghanistan withdrawal and they think, oh, this is what Ukraine's going to be like. But I think that brings up the point of sort of what are we getting for that 5% of the defense budget? Mm-hmm. You know, we gave a bunch to Afghan and, and we ended up getting the same situation that we had when we went in there in 2001, the Taliban mm-hmm. in control. But now they have... Yeah billions of dollars worth of American yeah. state of the art American military equipment and hundreds of thousands of Afghan people died in the interim. Exactly. Yeah. And then you contrast that with like, well, what is our 5% of military budget get us in Ukraine? And you look at what this is doing to Russia. Russia gained about 0.1% of Ukrainian territory in the year 2023, second year of war. And to do that, they lost about a hundred thousand soldiers. Now, there's a lot of people in Russia, and that's always been the thing about Russia is that they have this this depth of recruiting that they can pull on. But they're taking out recruiting ads in like St. Petersburg and in Moscow and in like the wealthy, that they're going hard on like recruiting from wealthy urban centers instead of sort of the traditional rural areas where they bring in all their recruits. Which, which is evidence to me that, that, that they're suffering from a, a manpower shortage in the same way that the Ukrainians are. Yeah. And that's one of the things that particularly frustrates me 
when people say that we're not, what are we getting for our money? Because like, that's, that's it. Like Russia is on the ropes. People just don't want to admit it. People see a slight incremental Russian gain or they feel like there's a standstill on the Ukrainian counteroffensive and they think, oh, well, let's just throw in the towel. It's like, no, you can't, you can't stop the pressure now. And mm-hmm. Putin is finally kind of ready to come to the negotiating table, it seems. And the Ukrainians, you know, need our help more than ever. And that's kind of the frustrating aspect. I, I, went, on, I went on the Hill TV the other day to talk with, with someone who said, Basically, she said, is there any hope for Ukraine? Like, very already fatalistic about the whole thing. Like, mm-hmm. are they already on the ropes? And I was like, no, <laughs> they're not on the ropes. And this is a narrative that we need to change. We need to yeah. understand that there's a, very, there's a huge difference between what military aid gets us in Ukraine versus what it gets us in Israel and Afghanistan. And there's, it's also like a, a, a significant change in like who is being killed by those weapons, right? Because even when we talk about the use of like the U.S. use of weapons uh, in in foreign countries. We are often talking about these kind of, these brush fire conflicts, these insurgencies in which a great deal of the fighting takes place in and around civilian populaces. And obviously there are Ukrainian cities that have been under siege for quite a while. But when we're talking about like the Ukrainians firing uh, or giving them HIMAR systems or giving them Bradleys, we are talking about weaponry that is being used to break fortifications on along a line of contact. Um, which isn't a zero, never is a zero civilian casualty endeavor because those don't exist in war, but is a significantly less, like involves significantly fewer civilian losses than the kind of wars that we have fought for most of the time that I've been alive, right? Because we're simply not using, the weapons are not being used in the same way. Bombarding a trench line is not the same as firing a cruise missile at what you're pretty sure is a terrorist hideout in a city, you know? Right. And we have been reluctant to give them any weapons that could do that. I mean, some notable exceptions would be like the strike on the Naval Command Center in Sevastopol. Yes. Some other drone limited. But, but honestly, most of those are drone strikes from drone factories where the Ukrainians create their own stuff. And, and there mm-hmm. have been some limited civilian casualties in their incursions into Russian territory because we won't we won't give them any weapons that go into yeah. to Russian territory. Yeah, they've had but we to give Israel anything they want. Yeah. <sighs> well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> anything else you know who we wanted else to get into Israel yeah. everything they want i mean we can't say that's not the case for for <laughs> whoever comes up next because a number of our advertisements are random Fair. but hopefully not Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. And we're back. All right. One of the things you have to keep in mind when you think about like is what are what is the US capable of doing that is positive and what is the US capable of doing that's negative is that the United States is fucking massive, right? Our budget is fucking massive. And we talk on this show on my other show about a lot of horrible things our government has been involved in, which doesn't dis- which does not detract from the fact that US aid and particularly food aid is like a survival matter for tens of millions of people around the globe, right? Like this is one of those things when the Republicans are talking about wanting to like cut all foreign aid that the US gives to basically everyone but Israel. What that means when you talk about that, you are talking about like starving populations of people larger than most major American cities because the US is massive and the aid that we give is, you know, usually not a it's not really that significant a chunk of our budget, but for the countries, for a lot of countries that receive it, it's like critical to survival, food aid and medical aid that we've given over the years. And I think that also gets into like one of the things that's important about understanding like how what what impact you might have on what's going on in Ukraine you don't have to it, 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 if you if you have too much of a, a bad taste in your mouth over the idea of supporting US military aid to anywhere there's a lot of aid that's not military that's necessary right as you do Charles people need medicine right like you are you are having a positive in out come on like the people in Ukraine if you are helping to increase their access to food and medicine and that's not morally complicated it's always there's always some moral complexity in handing out weapons around the world handing out medication is incredibly simple from an ethical standpoint at least from where I'm you're never a bad guy for giving medicine it doesn't even matter who it's to like well you're a bad guy to Israel apparently mm-hmm. yes yes they will they will drone strike you but I, I don't know I think that you like one of the nice things as an American, you don't have to realistically the 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 fight over Ukrainian aid right now um, is primarily something that is happening in Congress. And at this exact moment in that fight, there is very little that you or I can do. Um, but there is a lot as as you prove. 
Charles, there is a lot that individual people can do to help other individual people. Um, you may not have access to a, a, a HIMARS system or any more Bradley tanks to give the Ukrainians. Although if you do, please, please give them over. They'll appreciate them. But there are a number of ways in which you can help, like the actual people suffering on the ground. And I think that that's like that is right now what regular people can actually do. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I would push back a little bit in saying that there's not a lot that we can do in terms of the congressional fund, because I think that people do. I mean, I remember from back in my time working adjacent to politics, I remember someone told me a statistic where it said it took five phone calls to an office of a congressman for them to rethink their stance on an issue. Oh, interesting. I have received texts from aides to congressmen, Republican and Democrat, who sit on like House Armed Services Committee or, you know, defense and that sort of stuff saying like, hey, what's with this Ukraine thing? Like, what's your take on the Ukraine stuff? Should we be giving them all this money? I don't really support it, but you went over there. Do you think they're using it well? And I'm like, holy, holy crap, am I actually getting this text? Like, yes, absolutely. Like, <laughs> yeah, you need, you need to do that. You need to green light whatever you need to green light to send that over there. And I think if, if more people, you know, were, especially now when, when a lot of Congress people don't want to de- engage with the Gaza issue, but are looking for like good wins with their constituencies, like get to know your local Ukrainian constituency in your area, start a, start a campaign to go to the regional office of your congressman, find out which committees they sit on and, and, and pressure them for, for sending aid to Ukraine. I mean, that is something you can do. But on, on the individual level, yeah, you, you, you can still raise awareness. You can you can connect the decolonial struggle of Ukrainians to that of Palestinians and, and other peoples. Uh, someone who does this extraordinarily well is uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, not the Ukrainian politician. She's mm-hmm. a, a young Ukrainian influencer and advocate who went to NYU Abu Dhabi and sort of got kind of got pilled on the whole Palestine thing and mm-hmm. has, has really eloquently tied the Palestinian and Ukrainian struggles together. Um, so you can point people towards resources like that uh, and let them know that there are at least some people in Ukraine who, who see that, um, who see that connection. And then you can also, you know, of course, you can support humanitarian initiatives in Ukraine very carefully. Please just do so very carefully. I would say there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who went over there and started initiatives that were more or less good, but mostly kind of ineffective because they did not actually engage and include Ukrainians in that process. My rule with everything involving Ukraine is just like, just ask Ukrainians about it. Ask Ukrainians what they need, figure out what it is that their priorities are and make sure that you're including them on your philanthropy and your charity. Um, they will understand what is most impactful. Yeah, My organization think- has experienced a lot of success by being entirely run by Ukrainians and being based in Kharkiv. And as everyone else's funding and resources have dried up. Mission Kharkiv is being handed projects from larger NGOs who are leaving the region because we, we focus on a local response. It also means that you know, donations to organizations like that go farther because they're going to hire Ukrainians rather than paying for the, the flights of some Westerner to go back and forth you know, and do a fundraising, you know, come in from New York and do a fundraising pitch and go back. It's actually going towards, yeah, this was a commitment I made to, to myself and my, my partner when I went over there. My partner at, at Mission Kharkiv was that 
I was never going to expense like a flight or a meal or anything to Mission Kharkiv. So, you know, all that's come out of my own pocket. And that means that every donation that we have gets to go pretty much directly into our programs. So you can still do that as an individual. You can help in that way. And, and the awareness thing is a huge part. People are forgetting Ukrainians feel abandoned, like making even just the act of putting a Ukrainian flag on your notes or like tweeting about Ukraine occasionally is seen as such a huge act of solidarity at this stage in the game that the Ukrainians will love you for it. And I really love that you bring up the the kind of pitfalls of, and this is not, this is Ukraine right now in particular, because it was such a huge international story at the start of the expanded invasion. And that always brings out not just grifters, but also well-meaning people who are going to raise money and try to start initiatives in that country that may not be doing it in the most cost-effective way possible. And I, I really like what you said about like the importance of verifying that where you are supporting is not just doing the work, but is like doing the work in the best way possible. And one of like the really important things to look at for is like, well, how much money are they spending on sending Westerners to and from this place, right? It's one thing if like, it's a, an area that lacks access to medical professionals and they're flying out medical professionals to do like trauma work or whatever. Like there's really, yeah. like that's obviously important, but this is something that like a lot of my friends in Iraq and Syria also experienced, like the frustration of like NGO workers staying in nice hotels and driving, you know, fancy vehicles where there were local organizations doing things like maintaining refugee camps that needed the yeah. support. And I think that's always really important to try to do your research so that the the support you give, the the awareness you raise and the money that you donate actually goes where it needs to get. I think, I mean, that, that opens a whole broad category of... Maybe this is a subsec essay waiting to happen, but mm -hmm. I've been playing with this idea of like the idea of conflict vultures. Mm -hmm. These people who sort of descend on a, yeah. a conflict or a disaster zone for, for a variety of reasons. You know, maybe it's fundraising. Maybe they work for a big NGO and this helps get them in the news. So they fly themselves out there. Maybe it's a war and they want to be a hero um, or they want to present themselves as a hero and they end up raising a bunch of money for their equipment and stuff. And then, stay far away from the fighting line, living in nice hotels, like you said. Or maybe it is, like you said, well-meaning people who just take up air from the people who need it and take up, they're like sponges that just absorb all this Western energy because they're a, they're a relatable face. And I've encountered all of those people in Ukraine. Hell, I, the reason I went to Ukraine is because I was like, if I'm going to fundraise for this initiative, people are going to give more. They're going to be more invested if they see an English-speaking American talking to them about this stuff. But I came in with the perspective that I can't be centering myself on this. The idea is to deflect onto what the Ukrainians are doing and elevate their stories rather than saying, I'm here, I'm posing with the Bakhmut entrance sign, I just delivered seven muffins and a generator to like a place that was cleared out by the Ukrainians you know, six months previously. It's more like, okay, how, how do you take, Americans are very generous people. How do you take American philanthropy, American dollars, American wallets, and direct it towards the people who are actually going to change, who usually are not Americans? These large NGOs, they, they serve a purpose. The UN serves a purpose. Doctors Without Borders, Direct Relief, you know, World Central Kitchen, they do, they do a great job in like a specific thing. But a lot of times, if you're giving 
to the United Nations or you're giving to one of these big NGOs that sets up a fundraiser in the immediate aftermath of something, your money is going to remodel an office in Rome or New York or Washington, D.C. And you're not really reaching the people that you're trying to help. And I think if more Americans understood that, they'd be more responsible with sort of how they spend their money in a philanthropic sense. Yeah. Charles, you have been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us uh, your experience. And yeah, where can people find you on the internet if you want to be found? <laughs> Some, I, I go back and forth. Sometimes I don't want to be found and sometimes I do. But you can find me pretty much everywhere with at Charles McBride. That's McBride with a Y. Except on Twitter, randomly, I don't have that handle. And then I just launched a Substack, which is, I guess charlesmcbride.substack.com. Um, and that's where I'll be, I'm kind of shifting towards more long form content to write about my experiences with these things and um, sort of a more digestible long form way of people engaging with important issues like this. Awesome. Oh, and if you're interested in the, the organization I helped set up in Ukraine, it is uh, mission.harkiv on Instagram or missionharkiv.com. And I could put all the info in the description for yes. listeners and everything. But yeah. Sweet. Excellent. Thanks, Charles. Yeah. Thank you, Charles. You're the best. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.